Today's episode is a reflection on what just happened in Alabama this past week. The Alabama Supreme Court has recently ruled that embryos are children. That is to say, unborn children are children. Which means that all of the frozen embryos in labs over the world are already children. But before we get into that topic, I'd like to take a moment to mention our Patreon. You may have noticed that in the last few episodes, there's been a free portion as well as a portion that's available as a Patreon subscriber exclusive. The subscriber exclusive content will continue to be part of our podcast going forward. And it's just a number of other benefits that you can get if you want to subscribe to Patreon. Best of all, the subscriber portions of the episodes are available to subscribers at all levels. So often during NPR pledge drives, I'm assuming that those of you who are listening in the U.S. have heard these before, they'll say things like, you can support your local NPR station for less than the cost of coffee a day. But here's the deal. For Unbecoming, you can show your support and get exclusive content, such as the subscriber episode, bonus content, and Sunday School episodes, for $3 a month less than the cost of a cup of coffee a month. At the other levels, you can get discounts on courses, such as the Gottermer course I offered last fall, and a Nietzsche course that's planned for the coming months, a copy of one of my books, or even personal meetings with me to discuss content mentioned in the episode, or questions you have about personal views on subjects I haven't yet mentioned, or maybe even just general philosophy chats. I do hope that you'll join our Patreon community. You can find the link to sign up on our Twitter. It's currently our pinned tweet, or you can go to www.patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Let's get back to the Alabama case. The White House Press Secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, believes that the new judgment will lead to, and now I'm quoting from her, exactly the type of chaos that we expected when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and pave the way for politicians to dictate some of the more personal decisions families can make. I think that's a pretty accurate assessment of the situation. It is the case that overturning Roe v. Wade has resulted in a great deal of chaos in many states, and it's also the case that these decisions are being slowly but surely being taken out of the hands of ordinary people. Some might say that's a good thing, but the point remains. Ms. Jean-Pierre also noted that it was the Attorney General of Alabama who had warned its citizens against going out of state to get an abortion because they intend, or at least they are threatening, to prosecute anyone who even minimally helps a woman get an abortion. An Uber driver, certainly, but do they intend to prosecute gas stations for selling gas to somebody who's driving to another state? Here's what Chief Justice Tom Parker wrote to defend his position. Even before birth, all human beings have the image of God, and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. This is a problematic sentence. The first problem is this idea that human beings have been made in God's image. This first gets mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, where we read, So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1. Being made in God's image sounds 
really great. But the problem is this. What does this colorful metaphor actually mean? How are we like God? If you look it back at theology through the ages, it will become clear that this idea has been used in different ways. There has been and still is nothing like a consensus on what exactly this idea entails. Second problem is the last phrase, male and female, he created them. Christian theologians agree that God does not have a gender. So the passage is a bit misleading. Whatever it means to be made in God's image, it obviously can't be something to do with gender. And yet, that's what the passage seems to suggest. All right, so this idea that's been around in Hebrew and Christian morality uh, of the image of God has taken on many shapes and hues. So, for instance, for John Calvin, being made in God's image means having the faculty of reason. And this is something that uh, many theologians have said that only human beings have. For Karl Barth, the image is our ability to be in relationship with others. Note that both these sound like very reasonable definitions. It's just that they're very different from one another. If you have any doubts, just Google something like image of God. And now, of course, it's being used in a very specific way. Parker claims that even before children are born, they already have the divine image imprinted on them. One of the reasons that Parker can say this is because, as we've noted, there simply isn't any standard view on what it means to be made in God's image. The idea that human beings have this image even before they are born is a possible idea precisely because it's so vague. It's also possible because there's no evidence that could be adduced to argue one way or the other. You could claim that being made in the image of God means X, and I could say that it means Y. But how could either of us construct an argument one way or the other? Justice Parker obviously thinks that this means that unborn children should be given the same protections as children who've been born. The idea that destroying human lives, by the way, at the moment, I'm just going with what's being said rather than questioning it, that this idea that destroying human lives somehow effaces God's glory is difficult to understand. How would God's glory be diminished if a child were killed? Not a good thing for the child to be killed, but it's difficult to see exactly how those two things are linked. The argument seems to be that since human beings are made in God's image, that image suffers when human beings are mistreated. I don't know how to make sense of this claim. How is God's greatness or glory connected to individual human beings? That seems like a very, very difficult question. But Parker believes he understands this. He believes that God views the killing of any of his creatures as a, and now I'm quoting just briefly, destruction of God's image, which means that such an action is, and now I'm quoting again, an affront to himself that is, to God. Mr. Parker is certainly able to have such beliefs, but let's put these beliefs in context. First, this talk about God's glory is very Calvinistic in nature. Do you remember me sharing the story of claiming in class that the Bible doesn't have an answer to the question, why did God create the world? I said that in a class of about 70 to 80 students, and within hours, I was talking to my dean about why I couldn't say that. To be honest, I'm Still unclear as to why I can't say that. 
though I suspect it does have something to do with glory. A basic tenet of Calvinism is that God created the world in order to have his creation sing his praises. Unfortunately, this way of thinking gives us a picture of a very needy God, one who seems constantly dependent upon his creation for his own self-worth. Thus, I find arguments, and I'm using this term very loosely, that hinge on God's glory to be highly problematic. You should know that these arguments based on God's desire for glory can extend quite far. Some theologians, Calvinist theologians, by the way, think that the fall was engineered by God so that he could save us and thus be glorified further. I find this a perverse viewpoint. We needed to fall from grace in order for God to save us and make himself look great? Oh, that's a terrible claim. Parker can claim that unborn children, I'm using this terminology because that's his terminology, I personally find the phrase unborn children to be incoherent. But in any case, they don't have the divine image precisely because, or sorry, they do have this divine image precisely because the claim is vague and thus not susceptible to any kind of refutation. But here's the most important aspect. Parker quotes from Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin and the book of Genesis to come up with a view that's held in certain parts of Christendom, but in no way represents anything like the Christian view. Indeed, if we are going simply by numbers, the number of Calvinists is, in comparison to Christianity as a whole, relatively small, and dare I say it, insignificant. While there are some things on which most Christians agree, these are usually only basic doctrines. Thus, when people react to Parker bringing Christian theology into his judicial opinion, it's not just that he's bringing Christianity in general into his opinion, but bringing a very specific brand of Christianity. Parker's welcome to think that his brand of Christianity is the right brand, but the vast majority of Christian believers don't agree with him. In other words, this isn't a Christianity versus the world kind of case. Instead, it's a very specific form of Christianity against the world. According to Dr. Paulo Amato, who's the president of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, the court held that a fertilized egg in a fertility clinic freezer should be treated the legal equivalent of an existent child or a fetus gestating in a womb. I've quoted that sentence because it sums up the entire problem. People who want abortion to be illegal have long argued that a fetus is a child. Here we come to a basic problem. There really isn't any way to establish that human life begins at any particular point in time. Any point we choose is a choice. A choice that ultimately cannot be given anything like a foundation or ultimate reasons or anything like that. Something usually termed quickening when the fetus first begins to move has often been the choice for the point of time at which the child is now considered to be human. Those who oppose abortion often claim that the moment of conception, when the sperm fertilizes the egg, is when these cells become fully human. But here's at least one problem with such a view. Fertilized eggs may not implant in the uterus, which means that they would just naturally die off. Scientists estimate that probably only 50% of fertilized eggs get implanted. 
that means the other fertilized eggs are going to die. So obviously not all those fertilized eggs are going to come to term and result in a child. But on this way of looking at things, those fertilized eggs are already children. Given that point of view, it wouldn't be too difficult to get to the idea that embryos are already children. But this kind of logic is problematic, and here's why. Everything in the world is constantly undergoing change. Various religious thinkers and philosophers have posited that there is something that does not undergo change. So Plato believed in the eternal and unchanging forms. Aristotle postulated that something that he calls an unmover, unmoved mover, exists. Christianity has usually maintained that God does not change. But it should be clear that these things, the forms, the unmoved mover, and God, are highly unusual precisely because everything else is constantly in motion. And this is where the problem comes in. Claiming any particular point in time as the point at which a fertilized egg or a fetus or whatever is human is simply arbitrary. That's something we don't want to admit. If you want to think about this problem in another way, consider an acorn. Given the proper soil conditions, enough but not too much moisture, fertile soil, etc., an acorn can become an oak tree. I don't think any of us would think that an acorn is equivalent to an oak tree. An acorn represents merely the possibility of an oak tree. At what point does an acorn become an oak tree? You can see that such a question can't really be answered. An acorn that has grown into an actual oak tree is now obviously an oak tree, but it's also obviously no longer an acorn. We can choose any point in time as the point at which a fetus or fertilized egg becomes a person or human being. But it's very difficult to justify any particular choice. And this is not a problem of being on the left or being on the right. It's simply the actual situation of the birth process. It is a process in which the sperm must first fertilize the egg, then the egg must implant, then it grows to term, and finally is born. But of course, birth isn't the beginning of the life of a child. That life has already begun. The difficulty is pointing to any particular point in time and saying, this is the moment of beginning. Let me turn to an article here in The Nation. It's titled, Alabama's IBF ruling, Is Christian Theology Masquerading as Law? I think that probably states the situation as uh, as well as uh, the author can state it, uh, Ellie Mistal claims that Parker's argument is not a judicial argument, but a theological one. We've already noted that Parker quotes from Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin. Uh, the word God appears 41 times in his opinion. The book of Genesis gets liberally quoted. But here we come to a basic problem that's not easy to explain, and then and one that generally doesn't even get mentioned. Everyone knows about the official separation of church and state, but what exactly this separation means is, I think, never completely clear. Let me put it this way. It's clear enough that quoting from theologians and a judicial opinion seems very odd and inappropriate. That definitely seems like a clear violation of church and state. But we must not forget that Christianity is part of the very fabric 
of Western thought. Nietzsche spoke of the death of God back in the 1880s, and yes, Christianity, at least in the West, decreasingly takes the form of church attendance. Many people here in the UK simply do not think of themselves as religious. I've argued before that Christianity is still highly influential, but now takes forms that can cross religious boundaries. So, for instance, the idea of human rights is unthinkable apart from Christianity, which holds that each person is sacred in God's sight. That is a very Christian idea. Put otherwise, Christian ideas can enter the so-called secular world once they've been disconnected to Christianity. In other words, there isn't and never has been anything like a secular world that's simply disconnected to Christianity. That's just a kind of fiction. Let me put this another way. If anyone thinks that it would be possible to have religious views that in no way influence one's public life and occupation, then one hasn't thought deeply enough about religious views and their hold on us. If you think that people have a certain dignity simply because of who they are, perhaps with the additional idea of being created in the image of God, then that belief is going to find some expression. In other words, it's not strange that the judge has these theological beliefs. What is strange is that he thinks it's okay to use theological arguments to make a ruling in his capacity as Supreme Court justice. There, in a nutshell, is the problem. To be sure, it's not as if he is the first judge to make references to the Bible. You may remember Parker's friend, Judge Roy Moore, who thought that it was perfectly acceptable to hang a plaque with the Ten Commandments on the wall behind his bench. What's so interesting about this particular action is how differently it is perceived. For some, it is validation that our morality and law are based on the Bible. For others, it's an offensive thing. If you're not religious or if you have a different religion, then you're probably going to see posting the Ten Commandments as excluding you. However, it's important to see this is hardly a this-side-versus-that-side kind of issue. You might have a very strong commitment to Christianity and still feel that posting the Ten Commandments in this sort of public place is inappropriate. Indeed, if your conception of Christianity is shaped by views like that of, say, Stanley Hauerwas, who sees Christianity as counter-counter-counter-cultural and a stand against the predominant culture, you would find it weird to take something that belongs to particular religious communities and act as if it applies to everyone. From such a perspective, posting the Ten Commandments is bad because the goal of Christianity should not be to change culture, but simply to be the church. The point here is simple enough. One could object to what Moore did precisely because of a concern for the integrity of Christianity. But again, there's Christianity, and then there's Christianity. Parker's brand of Christianity is one that's been gaining momentum recently, and it's unfortunately Christian nationalism. We've already discussed Christian nationalism at some length, but it's worth mentioning that Parker has said that he supports what is called the Seven Mountain Mandate. Growing up, it seemed like the great imperative was that we evangelicals go around in the world and change it. Where does that idea come from? Well, here's a story. Three evangelical leaders, Lauren Cunningham, Bill Bright, who is the founder of Campus Crusade, 
uh, now known as Crew and Francis Shaper, claimed that in 1975, God had told them to dominate the seven spheres. If you're wondering what the seven spheres are, they are family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. The metaphors of being salt and light in the world at large were very much part of this thinking. The world is a bad place, and the role of evangelicals is to make it a better place. But I think there's a crucial distinction to be made. It's not hard to see that if followers of Jesus were simply to live as he did, the world would be significantly influenced by that. However, what I thought we were supposed to be doing was to make the world a better place by living as followers of Jesus. In other words, I didn't grow up thinking that the goal was to try and take over the state and federal government. But those who hold to this Seven Mountain Mandate want to take over society in the sense of Christian nationalism. They want to make the United States a truly Christian nation. Well, almost, because they want to use the Old Testament, so that's a bit of a problem. But in any case, the book that defines this movement is titled Invading Babylon. That probably tells you something right there. Invading Babylon, subtitled The Seven Mountain Mandate. Mistel quotes Jessica Mason Piccolo as pointing out that, and this is a longer quote, but it's very important. There's a direct line from the court saying, as the Alabama court did, that you can't destroy a frozen embryo to forcing women to implant any embryos they help create, which is what's coming next. The most obvious outcome of such a law is that couples give up on trying to have a baby by way of IVF. Too many complications, too many uncertainties. I do wonder if that's the effect that the Alabama Supreme Court wanted to have. Clinics in Alabama are already suspending IVF treatment. But the implications of this ruling go beyond merely the question of whether IVF treatment can continue. Here are some of the questions that Mistel thinks the decision raises. Do the icicle babies get a social security number? Can their mothers count them as dependents on their taxes? Do their fathers have to pay child support? Are we all nine months older than we think? And if so, do 17-year-olds get to vote in the upcoming election? I think these are all very reasonable questions. I don't think that they're, you know, laughable. Uh, they're laughable in the sense that, yes, if you define embryos in this way, these all become very problematic questions. My guess is the way things will go is that embryos will come to count as children in some respects, but not others. But I hope it's clear that this decision has many consequences, some of which we probably don't even know yet. According to Mistel, the problem is this, and I'm quoting, the court is saying the law cannot be interpreted absent the justice's exclusive interpretation of God's will. I think that's a fair and correct assessment. But if it's correct, then it's unconstitutional, since not only does the ruling privilege a specific religion, it also privileges a very narrowly accepted Christian theological position. One of the problems I encounter is that people who are against religion assume that all religions and all manifestations of a particular religion are equally bad. But it's important to see this particular case for what it is. It is not some manifestation of the desires of Christians everywhere to rule society. 
The mainline denominations have no illusions about how much influence they have over society, and also have no desire to impose their views on everyone. Misto makes the point that the ruling allows the state to force hospitals and clinics to adopt a specific religious viewpoint. In this case, the religious viewpoint is that embryos are children. But while this is truly a theological statement, it's not a legal statement. It can't, it can't be a legal statement. The most important thing to note is that it represents the views of a very small minority. As Mistel notes, using the power of the state to force others to live in accordance with a particular religious be belief is the very definition of state-sponsored religion. But those forcing their religious views on others are only able to do so because Christianity is already the default religion in the West. As I have said many times, people in the West are much more Christian than they realize. Oddly enough, many of the so-called liberals, or the libs, are actually much closer to Jesus' agenda than are the Christian nationalists. For one thing, of course, Jesus simply wasn't a Christian nationalist. Virtually everything he teaches goes against the idea that any group is somehow superior to the others. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene claim that only Christians should be in charge of things because they're just better than everybody else. But you see, the problem is, this doesn't fit with anything Jesus says. In fact, while we don't really know what the notion of antichrist is supposed to mean exactly, one might argue that someone who holds the view that white Christians are superior to the rest of the population is seriously at odds with what Jesus teaches. His message is precisely that there is no such hierarchy. But Mistel is fr frustrated that so much of the U.S. has simply accepted that such arguments are being made, and so we just have to put up with them. Here's what he writes. If these judges and justices were establishing any religion other than fundamentalist Christianity, people would lose their minds. If an Alabama court ruled that Trump had to be kicked off the ballot because he lies so much he lacks satya, and rested their opinion in quotes from the Vedas, there would be riots. The ruling would be overturned and the judges probably impeached. But because it's Christianity being shoved down our collective throats against our wills, because it's the majoritarian religion that is riding triumphantly into our courts, people accept these rulings as legitimate, if unfortunate, statements of law. This is the very point. Many of those wanting Christianity be established as the only religion acceptable have tried to argue that the U.S. was originally founded as a Christian nation. This is, as I've argued before, simply untrue. But even if it were true, it doesn't much matter. Most entities that survive for multiple decades or centuries develop in ways that might be difficult to anticipate. In other words, simply because a country was founded as religious doesn't mean that it can't change or that it must be religious forever. In England, the Church of England is the official state religion. But if you were to attend most Anglican churches on a Sunday morning, you would discover that very few people attend. By the way, I'm talking about Anglicans in the UK, not Anglicans in the USA. That's something completely different. Moreover, even though the Anglicans offer official pronouncements on various things, they don't get a whole lot of attention. Let me put this another way. 
The move to make Christianity the official religion, which last is really to make the Old Testament the law of the land, comes in the death throes of Christianity. As I say, the West is still very Christian in its most basic assumptions. So what exactly is dying? When Nietzsche talks about the death of God, what does he mean in practice? Nietzsche argues that those in the know no longer believe in God. His point is that this movement had already started happening. In other words, when he's writing in the 1880s, he thinks that the shift is already taking place. I think one way of characterizing the shift is that the metaphysics of Christianity have become problematic. For instance, miracles are currently defined as whatever would naturally go against the law of physics. But the very definition makes belief almost impossible, because we normally think that the laws of physics are such that they can't be broken. Now, of course, you can always say, well, you know, if God's truly omnipotent, God should be able to do that. And, yeah, if God's truly omnipotent, you'd think God should be able to do that. But I think most people today would find it difficult to believe such a thing, since they see the laws of physics as, well, not just something that you can just kind of casually suspend. Of course, as I pointed out before, this definition of miracle is not the only one possible. A miracle could simply be something that's highly unexpected and surprising, which I would guess is probably how the idea of miracles started off in the first place. There isn't a war between science and theology per se. It's only if we define them in certain ways that they can be seen to be at odds with one another. Misto concludes his article by saying that we are entering a new dark age, one where, like the last one, science, education, and facts mean nothing, and Christian myths and legends are given the force of law. That's a very dark conclusion. I want so much to say that he's wrong, but I worry that he may be more right than wrong. We live in a time in which the findings of science are increasingly questioned, in which the authority of an expert becomes no better than anybody else's authority, in which the value of education has come under attack. Of course, the force of Mistel's comment hangs on just how we see the medieval period. Was it merely an age of darkness in which only myth and superstition functioned? To be sure, the universities of Europe were dominated by the church, but one should be careful of assuming that they were therefore bereft of logic or ruled by superstition. I want to spend just a little bit more time on the event that brought this Supreme Court decision about. It's not unusual for patients to sue fertility clinics when they actually destroy embryos. There were 130 such lawsuits between 2009 and 2019. In this particular case, someone removed the embryos and then dropped them on the floor. One family filed a lawsuit, but the court rejected their claim by saying that the, and now I'm quoting, the cryopreserved in vitro embryos involved in this case do not fit within the definition of a person or child. That's the end of the quote. Eventually, three families filed lawsuits. But what exactly had happened was under question. Did someone drop some children on the ground, or did that person merely drop some embryos? The Alabama Supreme Court concluded that extrauterine children, that's their, def, that's their uh, locution, 
who are, and now I'm quoting, located outside of a biological uterus at the time they are killed, count as children, and thus are included in the wrongful death of a minor law. What makes these cases important is that the lawsuits claim that this accident brought about wrongful deaths. The embryos were persons, says the lawsuits, and the court was persuaded that this was correct. Denise Burke, who is part of the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, which is uh, a group that opposes abortion, considers the decision to be, and here I'm quoting, a tremendous victory for life. And then goes on to say, no matter the circumstances, all human life is valuable from the moment of conception. But isn't that the problem here? Can there be conception in a Petri dish? Just so you know, the Roman Catholic Church believes that there can't be conception in a Petri dish because conception requires sex. That's to say the Catholic Church does not support IVF as a treatment. Protestants are generally more open to the idea. But we'll have to stop there. I do have some further and more basic concerns about these definitions, and I'll turn to them in the final portion of the episode available on Patreon. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and thank you so much for joining us.